Listen, we exist to make much of Jesus, right? Want to make much of who God is in Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we go to God's word. We want to make much of Jesus. Well, as we continue to trek through Galatians, um, a few thoughts before I get into the text. Um, kind of the backdrop that I'm going to lay before I read Galatians 1 verse 6 is the sovereignty of God to save his people. God is sovereign over souls. And we're going to see that while God is sovereign over souls, the scriptures warn us. They bring warnings. Watch out. Don't be deceived. There's false teachers. And scripture warns us for a reason. So that's the unspoken backdrop. Sovereignty of God over all things, and in particular over the souls of individuals. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to Galatians 1. We'll start in verse 6. We'll go to verse 10. If you don't have your Bible, no problem. The text will be on the screen behind me. This is God's word for us this morning. I'm astonished that you, Galatians, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever heard of the term uh, turncoat? A turncoat is a person who shifts allegiance from one loyalty or ideal to another. A turncoat betrays or deserts from an original cause by switching to the opposite side or party. For example, if you know your uh, revolutionary history, Benedict Arnold was a general for the uh, Continental Army under George Washington. But in 1780, Arnold turned his back on the Continental Army and defected to the British. He was a turncoat. Another example of a turncoat could be a politician switching sides, right? Especially in our polarized culture where politics is polarized. That would, that just, that would just get everyone all worked up. A Republican became a Democrat. A Democrat became a Republican. My goodness. Uh, if you're a sports fan like me, you might remember something called the decision. Uh, it's when LeBron James said he was going to take his talents to South, South Beach. Right? In that moment, the entire city of Cleveland felt like LeBron James turned on them. In the first century, uh, in Galatia, 
there were teachers who stood among church members and tried to persuade them to turn from one teaching, the teachings of Paul, to another teaching. In, ef- in effect, these teachers wanted the members of these churches to become turncoats. And it is with frustration and care that Paul writes this letter to various churches throughout this region called Galatia. With frustration, Paul is incredulous. He's incredulous because he cannot believe not only that people are turning to a different gospel, but how fast they turned. So we read about Paul's frustration, but his frustration is overshadowed by the care he has for the Galatian people. Paul cares for their souls. He has concern, but it's because he cares. Here's the reason for Paul's care and frustration. Just just listen to the ministry done by Paul throughout Galatia. We get this from the book of Acts. When Paul was in the city of Pisidian Antioch, many Jews were converted to Christianity. Acts 13, this Pisidian Antioch in Galatia. When Paul and his companion Barnabas went to Iconium, another city in Galatia, Jews and Gentiles were saved. Again, that's Acts 14. In Lystra, Paul healed the crippled. Can you imagine that scene? He healed the crippled. And in Derby, we read that many more people were made disciples of Jesus Christ because of God using the ministry of Paul. I would imagine that during Paul's journey, he not only saw the hand of God at work, but let's be frank, he made friends. These people were, it was personal for Paul when he wrote. Throughout the Galatian region, Paul had real friends that mattered. And then to hear after the fact, after he left it, cities and churches within these cities were, were receiving a different gospel. He was frustrated. And I don't blame him, right? John, what are you doing? Tom, Mary. We broke bread together. We ate together. We laughed together. We cried together. We sang together. I opened the scriptures with you and showed you Jesus. Now you're going that way? What's going on? Again, his frustration was born out of his care for these people. The, the group of teachers who came in after Paul, so Paul's evangelizing, sharing the gospel, he leaves. The group of teachers comes in there. We call them Judaizers. I, I mentioned them last week, but I didn't explain who they were. Judaizers were legalists who came from Jerusalem to do follow-up on Paul's evangelism. The Judaizers were teaching that Christianity also included adopting Jewish customs, right? Uh, As I said last week, Judaizers taught that in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus the Old Testament, in particular, circumcision. This is contrary to the preaching of Paul, which says that God freely saves and no works can be added to the work of God, period. Listen, Paul's frustration is not because of a secondary or tertiary theological issue. You know what I mean? Here's a helpful way to think about why Paul is frustrated. In Christianity, there are like closed-handed issues and there are open-handed issues. Uh, Open-handed issues might include eschatology, your view of the end times, right? I, I have friends within this denomination who disagree with me 
of what it'll be like when Jesus returns. We all agree that Jesus will return, but what do we do with the, with the tribulation? How do you interpret revelation? Are there seven days? Do seven days really matter? You know, these, these various issues surrounding the end times. But no one questions the other person's salvation, right? We can debate, we can dialogue, we can have fun, and take it seriously, but they're open-handed issues. I have Presbyterian friends, right? Sprinkle babies for baptism. I vehemently disagree with them on that. I just don't see it in the scriptures, but it's an open-handed issue. We can talk, we can dialogue, we can sing together, we can fellowship together, we can pray together. I don't think Paul is all worked up over an open-handed issue here. He's worked up because it's the nature and work of how a person is justified. How a person is saved and justified is a closed-handed issue for Paul, and it should be for us. And with words for Paul, it's worth fighting for. It's why he writes Galatians. Paul's frustration is easily detected in verse 6 when he says, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Verse 6. In all the other letters written by Paul, Paul wrote many letters in the New Testament, after his brief introduction, there's always like a prayer or a thanksgiving. He's saying something good. That is completely absent in his letter to the Galatians. It's like Paul is saying, Dear morons. And then Paul continues to express his frustration. It's like, guys, what's going on? Think, where were you? When I was preaching, Paul's astonishment is not that some people have walked away from the gospel, but it's how quickly people turned away from the gospel. This is reminiscent of Exodus 32. In the time Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the Israelites turned away from God who led them out of Egypt in slavery. Here's a bit of the story. Let's pick it up where, when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God, Exodus 32. W- when the people saw that Moses delayed, so Moses is up in the mountain, people down in the base, and they're like, where, where are you at, Moses? We just sent you up a little while ago. You're not coming back. What's taking so long? Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought them out of Egypt and slavery, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So let's get this straight. Moses was up on the mountain, the people grew impatient, and then all of a sudden, of all the people, Aaron, Moses' brother, Leads the charge and does what? Hey, everyone, we're going to gather your gold and we're going to make you a golden calf. What an unbelievable and unfortunate picture of apostasy. God had done so much for the Israelites and yet they turned their back on God and on the man God used to lead them out of Egypt. So while all this was happening, God did say to Moses on Mount Sinai, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Same word we see in this morning's passage. Even the way the Greek and the Hebrew match up. 
repentance means the exact same thing. They turned quickly. Paul was just as angry with the Galatians, frustrated with the Galatians, as Moses was with the Israelites. But instead of throwing down the stone tablets, when Moses finally got back down from the mountain, Paul wrote the Galatians before it was too late. Now, pause, there's real application right here. Um, today, God's people can be impatient. I, I know this about myself. So often, we do not trust in God's plan and try to force our own plan. After God gives us something, we can grumble because we're always expecting something more or better or another shiny object. Um, we can think the grass is greener on the other side, right? Our fickle hearts can get caught up in the latest and greatest teaching, so we quickly turn. We can quickly turn our allegiance, which is what Paul says, deserting. Just like Benedict Arnold. We can turn away. That's why I had Ryan sing Come Thou Fount. I don't know if you noticed the lyrics of that song. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Galatians quickly deserted the teachings of Paul and they were turning to a different gospel. They were turning to a gospel of works-based salvation. Yet Paul reminds them that a gospel of works is really no gospel at all. You know, over my years of being a, in pastoral ministry, I know people leave the church for various reasons. And while I want church members to take that kind of decision seriously, very seriously, I, I know it happens. I'm not going to be naive and pretend it doesn't happen. Uh, but whenever I have an opportunity to chat with a person who is leaving the church, I always say something like this. It never fails. Wherever you go next... I just want you to go to a church that teaches and preaches from the Bible so that you can hear the gospel of free grace. I don't care about the kind of worship. I don't care if the church doesn't belong to a denomination or it does belong to a particular denomination. Big, small, medium-sized church, I don't care. I try to tell people to go to a church that preaches from the gospel that preaches the Bible because I know it's the gospel that saves souls and nurtures souls. The worship style of a church doesn't save. The charisma of a pastor does not save. A trendy church does not save. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ saves. And if you go to a church where the gospel isn't obvious, if it's not obvious, you should take note. It might be that the church makes the gospel a mere footnote, right? You read a book, especially academic books, where you've got all the main section that you read, and whoever reads the footnotes, only the really, really geeky brainiac guys. That's it. It's a footnote. It's an afterthought. That kind of church can be dangerous for a person's soul. Again, the gospel of free grace needs to be a close-handed theological conviction. Therefore, it must inform how we think about the church, how it shapes our marriages, how it shapes our parenting, our evangelism, etc. Paul, Paul's strong exhortation or rebuke against the Galatians and those teaching them continues in verse 7. Not that there is another one, 
Not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you that want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word distort in verse 7 can also mean alter or change in the Greek language. Alter or distort literally means that the false teachers were trying to teach something completely opposite of Paul's teachings. It would be like me uh, taking from you a glass of spring water and giving you salt water. There's certain elements that may look alike, but it's clear that it's different. It tastes different. It's obvious. It's stark. So Paul responds to say there is no other gospel, which is the main point of this passage. And because there is no other gospel, it means the gospel is exclusive. Now hear me when I say this. The message of the gospel, the message, the preaching of the gospel is inclusive, but the salvation from the gospel is exclusive. This is is an unpopular notion in our pluralistic 21st century culture. Um, Here's how one pastor makes his point. I really appreciate it. David Platt. I read a lot of his books. I recommend them to you. He says this, It is difficult for people to embrace the exclusiveness of the gospel when they swim in a sea of religious pluralism and philosophical relativism. That's the sea that you swim in right now. We often hear, he continues, all, religion, all religions are equally valid, and there is no one truth. That's what I grew up hearing. But finding right relationship with God is not like selecting deodorant. You may choose any of a number of antiperspirants to keep you fresh, but that is not the case when it comes to securing eternal life. Only one path to God will do Jesus. He has no equal. He is not one among many religious leaders. He is the one and only Messiah. People do not want to hear that to know God means walking down one path, the path of free grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a hard message, right? When the gospel is preached like this, it becomes offensive because it is exclusive. But Jesus never apologized for the exclusiveness of the gospel. And Paul didn't apologize to the Galatians about the exclusiveness of the gospel. You might say, all roads lead to Rome, right? Heard that expression? Everyone's going to the same place, but there's a different road that gets us there. And I say, one road leads to heaven and the rest lead to eternal separation from God. Now, the gospel mandate is that we do not discriminate who we preach to, who we evangelize to, who we share the gospel with. That is the gospel mandate. The gospel is for all to hear. In this sense, there is not a message more inclusive than the gospel. But who responds to the gospel is entirely exclusive. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life are only given to those who repent from sin and put their faith in Jesus. And I get that that's a hard message in our culture. I get that. But it doesn't make it any less true. And the Judaizers throughout Galatia were teaching another path to be made right with God, a different road that led up to Rome. 
And what does it specifically say that they were doing in verse 6 and 7? They were causing trouble. And they were distorting the gospel. We might say they were troublemakers of sorts, right? John Stott says this, to tamper with the gospel is to always trouble the church. You hear that right away? To tamper with the gospel is to, that close-handed theological conviction. You mess with that, you can start troubling the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. And before I go on, that's what we exist for. Like, I know we use that word a lot, but it's intentional. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers, now and then, not much changes throughout centuries and generations, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. It is they who trouble the church. And that is so true. When I got saved in my early 20s and from then on till today, the greatest trouble has come from those inside the church. Matthew 17, excuse me, Matthew 7, 15 calls these teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. And in our technological age, it is more and more difficult to protect the church from wolves. It wasn't, wasn't long ago when guarding the gospel in the church, in a local church, included basically two entities, right? You got your pastor or pastors and the congregation. Today, there are social media forces, YouTube, and a myriad of additional internet outlets where you can hear pastors preach. A kid in a basement can create a podcast and spout out whatever he or she thinks. Theological chat rooms exist for the explicit purpose to debate theology. Anyone with a personal theological axe to grind can go to Facebook. The noise from wolves has gotten louder and louder over the years, and the noise is not going to relent. It's not going to go away. And with technology, wolves get into the church. Now, on the one hand, I think the internet's wonderful. I'm not poo-pooing the internet. I got all the social media outlets. I got my ESPN.com where I'm looking up all these basketball stats and baseball stats. And stuff. I, I got all that. I like the internet. But as a local church, we want to utilize the internet as a tool for gospel advancement. However, it is undeniable that in this internet age, pastors and church members are having a more difficult time filtering out what is true and what is false. So how can you tell a false teacher from a faithful teacher? Right? One answer is really simple and profound, right? It's this book. It's, it's opening up scripture and reading it. I mean, every time I read the text before I begin a sermon. I say, this is the word of the Lord. And that's intentional. It's God's word to us, so we need to be shaped by it. And when you're shaped by it, all of a sudden when you talk to your friend at work, or you're on that Facebook post and you're like, that doesn't sound right. This becomes, becomes your guide and your governor. We can judge what we see and hear and guard our hearts from what we take in by ingesting God's word. The more you get into the Bible, the more you will be 
able to discern the noise, and the noise is so loud sometimes. Further, we all need to be more diligent, diligent about what we're taking in with our ears and our eyes. Because if we are not careful, it is easy to get swept away by the latest and greatest church fad, right? To be mesmerized by the next up-and-coming celebrity pastor. Well, he looks cool. He's charismatic. He jumps around. He's got a microphone, right? Gotta be careful. These days, you will hear more false gospels more than you will hear one true gospel. Again, John Stott nails it. The devil disturbs the church as much by air as by evil. When he cannot entice Christian people into sin, he deceives them with false doctrine. So yes, we must be diligent to watch what we believe as well as how we live. Theology is not a dirty word. Everyone does theology whether they realize it or not. You ever heard that? I don't, I don't do theology. Actually, you do theology. You're just not owning up to it. We all do theology, so we need to do it well. We must not be lackadaisical about our closed-handed theological convictions, specifically today the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's make sure we stay true to the gospel of free grace. Paul continues in verses 8 and 9 by giving a strong rebuke against those who preach another gospel. Paul even makes his case very personal. I don't know if you noticed that. It says this, but even if we, I mean Paul and his companions who traveled with him throughout Galatia, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, he's doing this with emphasis now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He's putting an exclamation point in verse 9. What we read in these verses should be the mentality, frankly, of every pastor in church. And Paul would have to go back to Galatia and preach a prosperity gospel, a works-based gospel, or a universal gospel. Any other gospel than the one he initially preached, he is saying he should be accursed. You see what Paul's doing here? He is putting his ministry on the chopping block. If what he says did not, does not pass the free gospel test, then he should be accursed. I appreciate that. I appreciate Paul put himself on the line for the sake of the gospel. Paul's appeal for the one true gospel to be preached is further highlighted when he mentions angels, right? Angels are, sometimes you bump into them in the Bible and you don't know what to do with, with angels. Paul probably mentions angels in verse 8 because Jews thought that the law was given through angels. Paul, remember, was a good Jew before he was saved and became a Christian. But we want to pause for a moment and consider what Paul is saying even if a message from heaven, right, an angel, even if a message from heaven is given to you, you gotta go to bed tonight, say an angel breaks in, right, super, supernatural, gives you a message. If that message is contrary to the, God, to the Bible, that angel should be accursed. Paul's use of the word accursed is significant. He wants to highlight that those who preach contrary to the gospel of free grace are to be eternally condemned by God. 
We're not talking about excommunication. He's not saying kick the false teacher out of the church. It's much stronger than that. Paul is putting the weight of God's judgment on the, so- on the shoulders of every preacher and teacher. So I want you to hear my heart when I say this. As the pastor of, of this church, of this church plant, I, I feel the weight of these verses. In addition to verses like James 3, 1, right? James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness. Why does God judge teachers with greater strictness? Here's my personal response. Because when I teach or preach or counsel get together and have a cup of coffee, whatever. God is entrusting me to care for your soul. And the care for souls shouldn't be taken lightly or for granted, but taken seriously. Listen, if you come to my home office, there are three um, theological diplomas on my wall. One's an undergraduate degree, two graduate degrees. And you know what? At the end of the day, they don't mean squat. Don't. God isn't looking for me or any other pastor to accumulate theological degrees. If I, Sean Powers, preach to you a different gospel, then I should be accursed. God wants pastors to faithfully preach the gospel of free grace. I won't be taking degrees to heaven, right? I don't think when I get there, it's be like, hey, what have you done, right? Glad you framed them, right? Whatever. Yeah, I've met people with PhDs in Old Testament, New Testament, Greek, and Hebrew language. I've got those friends. They know m- way more than I could ever know, but they should never be a pastor. Why? They're not preaching the gospel of grace. The heart hasn't been changed by the Holy Spirit. All this means that the person preaching does not validate the message of the gospel, but it's the nature of the message that validates the messenger. Here's another way to say it. The gospel makes and shapes the man. The man doesn't make and shape the gospel. In verse 10, Paul rounds out this section of Scripture by rightly aligning our affections. So after all that, he says this, For am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The first word in verse 10 is probably translated as therefore. The translators here preferred the word for, but I think therefore is the better translation because it it appears Paul is concluding a thought which began in verse 6. The real question that we need to answer in verse 10 is this. Who are we seeking approval from? That's, That's the bottom line question for that verse. Are we seeking approval from God or from the people around us? Because where you seek your approval, you will show where you're trying to ultimately serve, or who you are trying to ultimately serve. Now, on the one hand, God's love and pleasure for his adopted children never wanes. 
It never wanes. Because faith in Jesus Christ, God will love and cherish his children no matter what. Now, I can't, for example, I can't imagine a day when I don't love my children, Chloe and Izzy, right? You got kids, you know that feeling. Nonetheless, as their father, I do want them to grow. Even when I discipline them, it is because of their best interest, and I want them to be looking toward God. The parenting of my kids is all done out of a deep, deep affection and love for them, and I want my kiddos to know that I love them through the ups and downs of growing up into maturity. They will always have my love and affection. When we seek the approval of God over man, we are stirring to grow into Christian maturity, knowing that God's love and pleasure is set upon us. On the other side of the coin, we can strive for the approval from those around us, and this often reveals insecurity. Make a little application from this verse here. Here's a quick personal story of how I learned this lesson. My, my first pastoral position was tumultuous. Within two weeks of taking a pastoral position, probably about seven years ago now or something like that, um, there was a complete staff changeover. I had no idea this was coming. This was unexpected to me. But if in any church or business, when there's tremendous turnover, it, it becomes a really hard season, right? So much change. And oftentimes, we have a hard time dealing with change. But during this season, I began to see that I desperately wanted the church to approve of me as their pastor. One late day in my office, I sat in the dark crying, bawling my eyes out. I don't think I've told anyone the story except for my wife. Congratulations, you're not all in on it. I, I was crying because I realized that in all my efforts during that hard season in the church, I was not pleasing some people. But this was a holy moment in my office with my desk full of tears. God met me. It was the moment when God, the Holy Spirit, broke in and revealed my insecurity. Instead, God was showing me that I need to rest in God's approval and pleasure found in Christ. By resting in God's blood-bought approval, I sought and turned to please God. Knowing who God is was showing me if I could rest in God and his approval, then I could walk in freedom. The way I'm called to please God is just to faithfully preach and live out the gospel to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a faithful husband and father, etc. There is tremendous freedom for you when you rest in the free grace of the gospel offered from Jesus Christ. All the other imposter gospels don't set you free, but they actually keep you in chains. All the other gospels do not set you free from the insecurity that exists from trying to please other people. And, and you know, I, I pray God the Holy Spirit would use that verse. It wasn't a throwaway verse. Because we're all prone to insecurity. We all want to please other people. But we need to look upward toward God. I said to you last week that the reason why I chose the book of Galatians as the first book of the Bible to preach from cover to cover is because the gospel is front and center throughout. And so I want to end by giving you three reasons why the gospel is essential especially it pertains to this message, and why it's good to soak in the ocean of the book of Galatians for the next several months. 
here's the first reason why preaching the true gospel is essential. It's for the glory of Christ. When a false gospel is preached, Jesus Christ is not glorified. Think about the implications of that statement. If I'm true, think about those implications. How many church buildings exist where there is no gospel being preached? Or a false gospel is being preached? Christ is not glorified in those churches. And I'm not saying that because I have an axe to grind against any particular church. But I've been to enough churches to know the gospel is very, very absent. And statistics bear that out. Perhaps that statement would cause one to think that I'm taking an elitist position. We're better than all those folks, to which I say it's not an elitist position, it's biblical. Do we not read from Galatians 1 that the, of the importance of the one true gospel? And I'd also add this. It's unloving to not preach the gospel of free grace. That's why we do it here every single week. We want to bring glory to Christ. If the glory of Christ is at stake, then we must pay close attention to what the Bible says about how Christ is glorified. Charles Spurgeon, great pastor, he said this, if you met, if you meet with a system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. I don't know if he meant to rhyme, but it worked. Why flee? For the glory of Christ. You not only want to flee from false gospels, but flee toward the one true gospel. That was the first reason why Galatians is essential in particular today's passage. Second, the gospel needs to be preached for the sake of our souls. Paul wasn't worked up because of a few teachers disagreed with him on secondary issues like eschatology, right? He didn't get all worked up over that. He was worked up because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Therefore, to corrupt the gospel was to destroy the way salvation and so send some to ruins who might have been saved. So we got to get it right. And last, this is essential for the health of the church. That's why we preach the one true gospel the gospel of grace. If we exist to glorify God, then we exist to receive all that the free gospel of grace has to offer and to live out the gospel every single day. I, I appreciate how John Piper has stated this over the years. Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's so nurturing to our souls, which means as we pursue more of God, Christ glorifies himself in our lives. Our souls are being nurtured and we find ourselves growing in Christ's likeness. You know, when, when Jesus comes back, he isn't going to ask if our worship service had drums, although I like drums, but he ain't going to ask that question. He isn't going to care if we become a church of 100 or 400 or 4,000. Jesus is going to want to know if you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because of the gospel. He's going to want to know if you loved your neighbor as yourself because of the gospel, which means for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our souls, and for the sake of the church, we run toward the one true gospel with reckless abandon, knowing that it is always for our good, and it always brings God 
glory.